Hello, everybody. I'm Alicia Swamy. I'm here with Keely Severson, Eric Johnson, and we have Dr. David Strauss for a second interview. Thank you so much for joining us today. Happy to do it. Yeah. So um, just a little bit about you guys. What's What's been going on uh, in Texas? How are, how are you and your wife and your family doing? Well, I'll just say for people who are not retired, which I am, it is absolutely wonderful. I highly recommend it. That's amazing. And uh, we brought you back on just to reminisce a little bit. And we'd love to hear more of uh, Melinda Ballard's story and just more of your involvement and and maybe. Um... Well, what I, what I thought I would do is t- tell you how I got into this in the first place, and then I'll get to how I met Melinda. And then I'll tell you how we figured out um, how to uh, essentially fix and understand uh, the phenomenon of sick building syndrome. That sounds so great. Thank you. That's what I planned to talk on. So essentially, what ha- this is what happened. How I got into this field was, of course, I was at Texas Tech University at the medical school. And what happened was there was a uh, indoor air quality company at, at the time called QIC. And one of the, the main principals of that company was a Texas Tech graduate. And so he knew that uh, Texas Tech, of course, had a university and also had a medical school. So he essentially went to the president of the university and said that he would like to to, um, fund a grant to the university to try to figure out uh, what was causing sick building syndrome, because that's essentially what the the company did. And so the president, of course, had no clue as to who would be the best person to do that. And as it turned out, there was no one who was working on on indoor air at the time. But there was a, a guy named Dr. James McGrath in the physiology department at the medical school was working on outdoor air. And so they approached uh, Dr. McGrath and said that, that, the, that this company was going to fund a grant or a project to try to figure out what was causing sick building syndrome, because that was primarily the work that they were doing. They would get uh, invited into schools and the schools would be complaining that there was people were saying that there was something wrong in the building, but they had no idea what it was. And so it was the company's job to try to figure out what was causing this. So what Dr. McGrath did, he was a physiologist, and and he got one person from every department at the medical school, and we had a meeting, and um, he wanted one person to from each department to try to figure out what was causing sick building syndrome. And so um, McGrath and I had done some work together on uh, lung infections of Klebsiella in mice, and so he asked me to represent the microbiology department. And I, I said, Jim, I, I'm really very, very busy. I'm a, back, I'm a bacteriologist by trade, by, by training. And I said, I really don't have, have time to do this. And <laughs> it was interesting what he said to me. He said, well, everybody knows microbiology is not involved in, in sick building syndrome. So you won't really have to do anything. Just come to the meetings. So I said I would. And um, what essentially what happened was is the, the indoor air quality company came to that meeting and they said that they would like at least one faculty member to, to accompany them into buildings to begin to see if they could figure out what was causing this phenomenon of sick building syndrome. And so, of course, no one volunteered <laughs> to do this. And because McGrath and I were good friends, I said, OK, Jim, I'll, I'll do it. I'll, I'll go to a building and, and see what I can see. So the first school that we walked into, of course, I began to see water damage and I began to see mold growing. And I said to um, the indoor air quality company, 
I don't know if this is significant, but with all this water damage, there's a lot of mold growing in this building. And who knows, that could, that could be a problem. So I began to take samples and took it back to the lab. And, and I was not a mycologist at this time. I was a bacteriologist, which was an entirely different field than mycology. So I began to, to take a look under these, at these organisms under the microscope. And of course, I had to get a mycology book to begin to identify them. And what I found in the first building, I found a lot of penicillium growing and a lot of stachybotrys growing. Of course, I had really had no idea what these organisms were or why they were growing in the building. But I told the indoor air quality company, I would like to go with you to the next building. I think, think I found something interesting. I don't know what it means. So I began to go every time that they went to a building, I would go with them. And of course, I would find in these buildings that people were complaining water damage, and of course, mold growth. And I began to find stachybotrys and penicillium being the two major organisms that I would find in these buildings. And what really became significant and what, what really put us on the map is because this company had so many buildings, we had 46 different buildings and that I went to and I was able to collect samples. And I would almost invariably find stachybotrys and penicillium growing and sometimes other organisms like Chitomium and, and Aspergillus. And because the indoor air quality company not only looked at these buildings, but they had the capability of fixing the problem in these buildings. And of course, that um, what, what they needed to do, of course, was to stop the water intrusion, figure out where the water intrusion was coming from, and then remove the water damaged materials where the mold was growing and then go back and, and do the same type of uh, questionnaire to the people who were complaining in the building in the first place. And beautifully, what happened was, of course, is that after the building was repaired, the water damage stopped and the mold uh, growth removed, all of a sudden, these people in the building now are saying, I don't have any problems with this building. The, the indoor air is, is fine. And we published that paper uh, in 19, uh, I think, 1998. And it really showed that mold was really the cause of this phenomenon called sick building syndrome. And the two primary causes of sick building syndrome, at least we found, of course, stachybotrys, which produces a very potent mycotoxin, which after years of research, we we're actually able to measure the concentrations of this mycotoxin in the air. And then, of course, penicillium, which if it's growing in a building, it's not the mycotoxins that penicillin produces, it's the millions and millions of spores that, that the organism throws into the air and we, when people inhale it, not only do they begin to react immunologically against these spores, but the spores actually, interesting enough, begin to react against the person that inhaled them, producing some compounds like proteases, et cetera. So that essentially was, um, in a nutshell, how our research progressed, and I think I spent I don't know, 20 some odd years doing this and, and learning a tremendous amount. Uh, because as I say, I wasn't trained as a mycologist. I was a bacteriologist who became a mycologist just to follow this research institute. So that in a nutshell is how I got started and how um, essentially how we began to figure out what the cause of sick building syndrome. It was almost exclusively water damage in the building and mold growth. And the primary two organisms that we always found in these buildings, of course, was stachybotrys and penicillin. And I explained to you essentially how these began to cause problems in human beings. And I'd be happy to. That in a nutshell is how I got started and essentially how uh, 
at the end of our research. And of course, we published a lot of papers uh, along the way, but I'd be glad to answer any questions you guys might have about, about that. And then I'll tell you how I met Melinda Ballard. Any, are there any, any questions about any of that? Well, yeah, I, I do uh, have a question. In the uh, early days, when people were complaining about sick building syndrome, they were relying on their senses. They would take you right up to the colony and point at it. And um, the uh, mold that kept showing up over and over was stachybotrys. Even in spite of all the other species, you know, Penicillin, Masperzotus, which is pretty much everywhere, the stachybotrys kept showing up over and over again. And this is what drew my attention to stachybotrys, is it seemed to be a common denominator. And later after uh, testing was developed, people would say, well, we find the most penicillium, the most aspergillus, so that must be your problem. And their test methods, the way they found the most, whatever they found the most of, that got the blame rather than the stachybotrys. So what's your feeling on the role of stachybotrys as being more of a sickness inducer than aspergillus and penicillium? Well, I'll tell you, Eric, interestingly enough, we we would uh, we did a lot of homes, too. Not only did we do uh, school buildings, but we did a lot of homes, too. And I was thinking of one in particular. It was a beautiful home. And the the man who lived there just was complaining all the time. He just said, I feel lousy, sick all the time. And we went in there and we could not find mold anywhere, you know, with indoor air samples. And the guy was complaining so much. To me, it sounded almost uh, almost assuredly like it was a stachybotrys problem. But we couldn't find it. We couldn't find the organism in the air, and we just couldn't find stachy anywhere. So what we did was we figured out that what was going on with this guy's house was he had a water leak in his bedroom right behind where his bed was, right behind where his head was. So we bored into that area and found out, of course, there was a water leak there. And sure enough, Stachybotrys was, was growing behind uh, where his head laid every night to sleep. And Stachybotrys was not actually getting out into the air because the spores were, were so large, they weren't getting into the air. But the mycotoxin, being as small as it is, was indeed getting into the air. And of course, he was inhaling it uh, pretty much every time that he, he slept at night. So we, of course, stopped the water leak, removed the Stachybotrys uh, growth behind his bed. And after that, he was fine. So um, that's an example of stachybotrys being in a place where you can't find it, but the mycotoxins uh, are, are present. And, and believe me, f figuring out a way to measure the mycotoxin, which is incredibly small in the air, was something that took us years to be able to figure out how to do. Well, I just got to throw in the story that in 1998, when I used my perceptions to hone in on stachybotrys, I was so alarmed at the way this was hidden. People just weren't finding it and blaming everything else that I went to see Dr. Vincent Marinkovich. Dr. Uh, yes. Yes. Yeah, done because he was the, the big name at the time. And I told him about that. I said, this stachybotrys seems to be an overwhelming thing that just sneaks up on you, hidden, almost impossible to find. And I told him that um, there have been times where people absolutely could not locate it by any means in the air, but that it was hidden behind walls. And he said, I he had just heard about a housing project in Sweden where everybody was sick. They couldn't find any signs of anything harmful in the air until they busted open the walls and found that the stachybotrys was, was so tightly sealed that no fragments or spores were escaping, just the toxins. But that was enough to keep people ill. 
that's, that's exactly, uh, Eric, that's exactly what we found in a numerous, uh, in numerous situations. And I'll just mention that, 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 doc, that, that Vincent, of course, unfortunately has, has passed away, um, since then, but I did have him write a, a chapter in my book and I was really pleased with you know, what he was capable of doing. He was an extremely nice man and I really miss him. Absolutely. And uh, he was an associate professor at Stanford and they just gave him such a hard time and they have never recognized his contribution to the mold paradigm. And uh, to be perfectly honest, I feel that Stanford owes him a huge apology. Yes, unfortunately, um, you know, I did. I did. Believe it or not, I did fifty. Uh, I was expert witness in fifty different mold cases, and, and the MDs were attacked like like, like Dr. Marinchevich were attacked mercilessly. Just it was just horrible what what they would do to them, um, just essentially because the MDs really had a very hard time publishing any any uh, data in this in this area because essentially what they were doing was treating sick people. And of course, we were able to publish many papers, many peer-reviewed papers, and we really never, ever had a problem with anyone attacking uh, our work because I would essentially say when I would get into one of those uh, depositions and one of the MDs or, or one of the lawyers would attack me, I would just essentially say, here are my peer-reviewed papers. Where are yours? And, and they, of course, didn't have any to show that indeed mold was not the problem. They didn't have any papers. I wanted to ask one question because I know that the first interview we did with you, you explained to us how you use the mycotoxin air sample test. And there's a new mycotoxin air test that's on the market. And the thing that is perplexing me about the new air test is the flow rate. It collects. I'm sorry, when you say that, what's perplexing you again, Keely? The, the flow rate because it okay. collects at two liters of air per minute. And for how long do they do that? Now, once again, I want to tell everybody, I have been out of this field for 10 years. And, and so you may be telling me about new things. And, and so I just may have questions for you. Yeah. So, um, well, you can run it for an hour or longer if you want, but the standard is kind of an hour. And I brought this up to the company that I, I felt like the results would be showing like a false low because of the flow rate and their response was that the ind industry standard is currently like this flow rate and the standard is set this way because only a small percent reaches the deep lungs and it I it just it rubbed me the wrong way it sounded like not an actual explanation and it sounds like this air test can show false low results because of the flow rate. And I don't know if I'm right or wrong. And I just wanted your opinion on that. Well, Kira, you are, you are absolutely right. Um, if, if, if that's the way that they do it now, I can tell you that it doesn't work. We had a machine that collected hundreds of thousands of liters of air, and we would run it for days in order to be able to find the mycotoxin in the air. And we found, we actually measured, there are picogram picogram amount of mycotoxin floating around the air. That's why we had to collect hundreds of thousands of liters for days in order to get enough to be able to, to actually test it and show that it was present. And, you know, interesting enough, one of the lawyers, once again, I'll go back to the depositions that I did. One of the lawyers said to me, well, if, there, if the concentration in the air is that small, and it is that small, why is that a problem? And essentially what I said was, even though there are incredibly small amounts 
of the mycotoxin in the air, just think about how many times you take in, you breathe in a day in these buildings. And you may not get sick the first day or the second day or the third day, but eventually you're going to take enough mycotoxin into your lungs, get it in the bloodstream where it's going to start going to organs like, say, for example, the brain and begin to cause problems. And that really is the answer to that. I would say that what you're talking about that these people do, it'll never work. So I did use their test in my home and was able to find trichothecene, but I feel like the actual amount was much higher than what was reported on the result, which was like 0.300 parts per billion. But I actually had a window seal fail that pulsed out so much nastiness, it chased me out of the house for a couple days. So like, I'm not saying that that's proof that the result was actually higher. I just wanted your opinion based on the flow rate, if that could collect what's actually present, because it just did not make sense to me. Well, if, if that's the way they did the test and, and that detected trichothecenes, and I'm not saying it didn't, <laughs> then there's a whole lot more in, in the air that, that you were breathing or in your building than they gave you uh, uh, an indication of. But that, as I said... That- we had we had a machine that cost a quarter of a million dollars that was capable of, of doing this. And the reason is that I could never afford a machine that could do that. But the reason the company gave us that machine to do the testing was exactly uh, what you're talking about now, to be able to detect the trichothecenes in the air. And we had to collect hundreds of thousands of liters of air to get it down to a concentration. I'm talking about buildings, for example, I'll tell you about Melinda Ballard's house where there was stachybotrys everywhere. I mean, it was absolutely everywhere. And we then, as I say, we did test her house and it took us uh, this machine collecting hundreds of thousands of liters of air to be able to detect uh, picogram amounts of the mycotoxin in the air. Do you have any opinion on why this might be called the industry standard, this low flow rate? It seems like they're making a standard to not find the full concentration. And that's very troubling to me. Uh, I, as I say, I've, I've been I've been out of the haven't done any research and haven't even followed the literature in ten years. So why they would consider that the standard, I don't know. We we published a, a way to do it where you could actually because as I say, the amount in the air is so small. Um, as I say, we published a way to do it and, and why someone wouldn't wouldn't do it the way we did it. Well, I, I imagine here's the reason they couldn't do it with the way we did it is because as I say, that machine cost a quarter of a million dollars, and I'm sure. Most, most companies cannot afford to buy a machine like that. Thank you, Dr. Strauss. We'd like to take a moment to thank our sponsors. Home Cleanse, formerly known as All American Restoration, is a company that specializes in improving indoor air quality through proper mold remediation, offering services nationwide. You can visit them at homecleanse.com to learn more. The Mold Guy performs mold sampling and testing for homeowners, renters, and businesses. Please visit themoldguyinc.com to learn more. Black Diamond Services provides solutions to the unforeseen challenges that can affect homes and families with no out-of-pocket costs. Services include temporary housing relocation and mold test referrals for homeowners. Visit blackdiamondservices.com to learn more. Thank you again for your sponsorships. It is integral to our ability to serve our community and to improve the quality of life for all. So we're looking forward to hearing your story about Melinda Ballard. All right. So here's what an what an interesting lady she was. And you you guys know that 
unfortunately, she also passed away. Um, unfortunately, this is what this is what happened. How I met Melinda Ballard. Now, never I'll never forget it because I worked with I worked with her a lot, and she was a kind of a lady who generated news on her own. That's what she did, and because of that, I got on. Uh, I was on the nightly news of NBC, ABC, CBS. I was on 2020. I was on 48 hours. And I, and I like to say that I was on 48 hours and I did not kill anybody. But that's the kind of reach that she had um, while she was alive. And, and this, this, okay, this is the story of how I met Melinda Ballard. Um, one of the majors in the company that I was telling you about, his name is Bill Holder. And he was not the, the guy who went to Texas Tech. He was the other principal owner of the company, QIC. And this was back maybe maybe in 1988 or so. I, I'm sorry, 1998 or so. I, I really can't remember the year, but it was a long time ago, maybe even 2000. And he was flying on a flight, uh, Southwest flight somewhere. And as luck would have it, he sat next to Melinda. And the entire time they were flying, she was coughing and she was coughing up blood. And Mr. Holder is a, just an extremely nice man, and he was obviously very concerned about sitting next to a lady who was coughing up blood. Not not a lot of blood, but enough to be concerning. Not like a tuberculosis kind of blood. And she said, he said, excuse me, ma'am. He said, are you sick? Is there anything wrong with you? And she said, uh, everyone in my family feels terrible. I've been coughing continual. Every time I'm in that house, my husband, my child, we're all sick and we have no idea why. And you, and you know what he said to her? He said, excuse me, ma'am. He said, have you had any water damage in your home? And of course, the answer was yes. And so the next day, Mr. Holder and I and one of my graduate students were in Melinda Ballard's house. And if you can imagine that she, she came from a very wealthy family. Um, I think her father was a banker. And the house that she lived in was built to look just like Tara from Gone with the Wind. And I'm sure everybody's seen Gone with the Wind and remembers that house. And there was this huge spiral uh, staircase in, in the middle when you walk in the front door. And if you remember, that's where um, Brett Butler or Clark Gable said, you know, frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn. And I was standing on the that stairway, beautiful house. And I said to Bill, Mr. Holder, I said, I don't feel good at all. I said, I got to get out of here. And I and I left. And so Mr. Holder and my graduate student stayed there in the building and, and actually began to collect samples. I went outside and sat in the truck and I, and I had to throw up. I was I was so sick. I, I said, you know, there, there's there's something wrong in this house. And they were able to collect the samples. And we, you know, we took them back to my lab and we looked at everything. And not only was there one water leak uh, behind the major water leak that was growing stacky everywhere behind her refrigerator. You can imagine the whole wall was covered with stacky boxes. And they found uh, 11 other places where stacky was actually growing. And so I, I, after we got the samples, I called her. And at that time, there were absolutely no standards as to what made a house or any building unsafe to be in due to a mold contamination. There just weren't any standards. And so I felt very uncomfortable telling her that I think you guys ought to leave this house. I said, we find we find a very dangerous organism called Stachybotrys everywhere. 
but I can't say to you, you you have to leave this house because there aren't any standards as to what constitutes the amount of stacking in a house that nobody can can uh, still inhabit that house. So she took my advice and they they moved to a there was, there was another small carriage house behind the house and they they all moved in there, and um, that was how I met Melinda Ballard and. From then on, there was this huge trial, and I think it was probably the first mold trial with Farmers Insurance, which was her insurance agency. And so farmers, once Melinda told farmers that Stacky Botchers was in the house, they essentially said, you can't do anything. You can't begin to remediate the house. You can't do anything. And she was thinking, well, if I can't do anything, how am I going to um, make this house livable again? And so essentially what happened was that she sued her insurance company because they they essentially said uh, this house can be fixed for, I think, like the mountain was two hundred thousand dollars. And actually, it, it, it would have cost millions of dollars to, to renovate that house and get rid of all the stacky botches. And so the first this was the first mold trial, as far as I knew. And you're not going to believe what happened. I, this was the first. <laughs> this was the first depositions I ever had to give. And I was completely overwhelmed by being uh, interrogated by their number of lawyers and having to you know, give expert advice over something I was just learning about. And so there, what happened essentially was is that, that Melinda had doctors uh, examine her and her son and her husband. And what happened to her husband was the stachybotrys affected him to such a degree that he was incapable of doing his job anymore. And he evidently was a very bright young man. And he got so sick, the Stachybotrys mycotoxins destroyed his mind to the great degree where he couldn't even remember when he would come out from work, what kind of car he drove. He couldn't even find his own car. That's what it did to him. It made her son extremely sick where he couldn't go to school. But interestingly enough, it didn't affect Melinda or her mind in, in any serious way, except for the coughing that I told you about. So the fascinating thing that happened was the day the day of the trial, the trial was going to begin, and she was suing farmers, this insurance company, for millions of dollars. The judge on the first day of the trial threw out all of the medical experts that she had. He said that there's no um, there's no published data on what they were saying. Therefore, uh, none of the medical doctors that she had hired were going to be allowed in the case. There was only one expert that was allowed in the case, and that was me. <laughs> so you can imagine how I felt. And I thought, okay, all these medical doctors are going to say, okay, Stacky Botrys made them family sick, and none of them were allowed to testify. And I was the only one allowed to testify in their case. And so essentially what happened was, is I can't remember how long it lasted, but the jury came back and awarded her $32 million, if I remember the number correctly. Um, she won the case and farmers had to pay $32 million, which, of course, she figured was a great victory. Then I think farmers uh, appealed it. And I think the appeal courts knocked it down to $6 million, if I remember the numbers correctly. And essentially what Melinda told me after this was all over is that the amount of money she spent fighting farmers was essentially the amount that she got back by suing them. And that is how I met Melinda Ballard. And then from then on. Uh, I was on television shows, like I told you, 20, 20, 48 hours. I was on Nightly News. I was in Time Magazine. 
just because of, of the power that Melinda had to get publicity for, for this particular phenomenon. Now, I'd be happy to answer any questions about how I met Melinda Ballard. Well, not only did Melinda Ballard bring toxic mold to the attention of the entire American public, but she uh, unveiled some characteristics that hadn't been previously known. For example, she pointed at a uh, picture of her family taken with the Clintons, you know, with the president, and said, all this has to be destroyed. We're, we can't even save this photograph. And up until that time, the idea that anything could be so contaminated that you couldn't take it out of the environment and save it was completely foreign to everybody's way of looking at mold. Well, I, I remember that picture that you're talking about, Eric. She she, she told uh, told me about that picture, and, and I will not tell you where she told me Bill Clinton's hand was when that picture was taken. But um, we actually began, uh, and Eric, I don't know if you're familiar with the work that we did, but but that's the phenomenon that you're talking about is very important, and we then decided that we would examine it. Um, and by by putting um, stachybotrys on things and then seeing the best way to remove it, and then also by putting the trichothecene mycotoxins on things and seeing the best thing, best way to remove it. And also what we did, which I thought was very important, and, and this may be something you want, we want to talk about, is even in houses that were heavily contaminated with stachybotrys, we found very little, in fact, we found very little, if any at all, Trichothecene mycotoxins on things like, say, for example, we would go into houses and we would, would try to find the trichothecene mycotoxins on things like on couch or on a table, and we really didn't we really didn't find it much. In fact, I, I don't can't even remember that we ever found anything that was actually uh, on that would contaminate things. Now, anytime we found mold growing on something, of course, that particular item was contaminated not only with the stachybotrys, with the trichothecene mycotoxins there, but items in the houses, we really found no stachybotrys and essentially no mycotoxins on objects in the house. That, that surprised us. Well, our anecdotal experience of carrying contaminated objects out of a stachybotrys-ridden place and reacting to them, it was never supported by science. So we've been at odds with the medical profession over this for all these years. Well, I, I essentially told people, and of course, I would get phone calls, especially after the 48-hour show. I would get all kinds of phone calls from people asking questions. And, and one of the questions was anything, like I people would say, I have this wonderful China set that, that, um, that has been passed you know, for generations down to the family and had stachybotrys in the house. Do I have to throw that away? And I told them, absolutely not. All you need to do is is wash you know any hard object like that just just wash them off and in reality as i say we found essentially no trichothecenes on objects in the house unless it had mold growing on it and i told them anything that you have that has mold growing on it throw it away but objects like you know our hard objects like like uh, chinaware or stuff all you gotta do is wash it off and it'll be fine but i will tell you eric something that psychologically people were afraid of things that, they, that were in their house that in reality were not dangerous, but psychologically, they they just couldn't handle it. Well, that's um, something that I'd like to analyze because in my view, there is still a toxic substance present and people find it using their perceptions. And it's my assertion that the, there's still something there and we really don't have the technology to detect it yet. 
And you know, Eric, you could be absolutely right. See, the only thing that we were testing for was the mycotoxins. And, and you know, you're absolutely right. There could have been something else there that was causing people the problems. But since we didn't know what it was, obviously, if we don't know what it is, you can't test for it. And there could yes. indeed, like just like you said, be things there that we had no idea that were there but, and obviously couldn't test for it. Yeah, that was a really important headline for me. I bought 20 copies of that uh, Melinda Ballard USA Today um, newspaper, and I mailed it to all the top chronic fatigue syndrome researchers at the time. I hand-delivered some of them, and I said, this is what I've been talking about. This is the phenomenon that happened at ground zero for chronic fatigue syndrome. And what science doesn't appreciate is the power of contamination. But once people are hypersensitized, they move somewhere else. They think their problems are over. And yet they brought their possessions with them. And they don't appreciate that there could be contaminated objects and new um, things that they buy, warehouses that are moldy, or houses that they've been in where they didn't wash off after they were there. And they're bringing just enough of this into their environment that it can still be a driving force in their illness. No, I, I have to say that that absolutely is a possibility. Since we didn't know if there was something there, we obviously didn't know how to test for it. And, and I have to agree with you that there, there could be something else that we, we didn't know about that we couldn't test for. Now, we, we did do some work with um, the chitomium. Uh, we, you know, uh, the, 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 I can't even remember the name of it now. It's been so long. I've looked at those papers. But chitobium also produces uh, a, a mycotoxin. And uh, I just began to work with that just a few years before I retired. So there could have very well been. Yeah, I'll tell you what, one of the things we, we found, I have to tell you another interesting story uh, on one of the trials that I was on. And this had to do with chitomium. And um, I went to look at a house that, once again, people uh, had to leave. And we went in there and we did the evaluations. And the or major organism that we found was chitomium. And you, and one of the things that, you know, chitomium has the same water requirement as stacky does. It requires a lot of water over a long period of time. We didn't find any stacky in the house, but found chitomium everywhere. And the fascinating thing about that house was I found dead cockroaches everywhere. That house was filled with dead cockroaches. And, and, I, and I said this during the trial, which, of course, we won over the insurance company. I said, I had never, ever seen anything like this before. And if the chitomium mycotoxin is capable of killing cockroaches, which pretty much nothing else kills except for uh, raid spray or you stepping on them, I said, that house was really dangerous if the cockroaches in there uh, died. And the, and the jury, once they heard that, they, they awarded this, this family. I can't remember what it was. But anyway, that, the family won that particular case because of all the dead cockroaches in that house and the fact that plutonium was growing there. And we had just begun, begun to work with the mycotoxin that plutonium produces, which is an entirely different mycotoxin than the one Stacky produces. Just I, I happened to think of that particular story. Yeah, when um, Dr. Shoemaker developed his uh, HLA-DR genetic theories, I said, if people start going down the path of thinking this is a genetic problem, they're going to be completely misleading themselves because this stuff is just plain toxic. If it'll kill insects, kill rodents, make pets sick, which don't even have human leukocyte antigens, we, we can't waste our time looking at genetics on this. Well, I know, I'm glad you brought that up because I was thinking of something that we did in Melinda Ballard's house uh, during that 
that that, that the judge would not allow uh, us to show during the, her trial. But I told Melinda, she would say, well, how do I know that house is, is really dangerous? And I said, I, I have a perfect way to do it. But unfortunately, it's going to involve uh, a live mice. And so my suggestion was um, that she hire a young boy to put a, a cage with white mice in it. And he would go every day and feed and water them in the house, in Melinda's house. And then he would get, have a cage of white mice that he would put in his house. And the only difference between the way he fed and watered them was the location, Melinda Ballard's house and his house. And all of those white mice in, in Melinda Ballard's house died. And, and it was not pretty at all what they looked like when they died. And, and I told Melinda, this tells you how dangerous your house was. We, we were not allowed to, to present that evidence at trial, um, <laughs> interestingly enough. But that gives you an idea of how dangerous her house was. It's absolutely stunning that the uh, techniques for identification of the power of this toxic exposure is so simple as doing an experiment like you just described. And yet somehow we can't get our institutes, our doctors to even conceive of these, these simple measures. Well, I'll I tell you, you know, I, I, uh, I taught medical students, but I taught them bacteriology. But I noticed that our mycologists ne never, ever taught them about these organisms that are growing in houses because I really think she, she didn't even she didn't understand uh, what these organisms growing in houses were capable of doing. But medical students, at least when I was teaching in medical school, they're taught absolutely nothing about uh, stachybotrys and this type of organism, which is really um, a shame because if you think of how many buildings have water damage in them and then these organisms grow, it, it's a shame that medical students really don't learn anything about this particular phenomenon. There are really very few MDs in this country that understand it. At least there were 10 years ago when I was working. In mold groups, people are saying that they're making such great progress because now everybody's aware of mold. And yet the mold experts are saying all molds are equal, all molds are the same. You have to avoid all molds. And they've actually detracted the attention from ketonium and stachybotrys. Well, the... the one of the arguments that the lawyers always made, the defense lawyers always made in the cases that I was involved with, and I would say, you know, it's true. You can find mold spores anywhere. You can find them in the air. You can find them coating things. And so they would always, the defense lawyers would always say, well, then what's the big deal? If mold is everywhere and it's on everything, then, you know, why is it a problem? And I would say it's really simple. Once you have water damage in a building and mold begins to grow, now you've got a problem. But the mold spores that you find on hard surfaces, you know, or, or the mold spores floating around in the air, in, in the outside air, not a problem. But if you have billions and billions of penicillium spores in the indoor air, then people are going to inhale them and you're going to have problems, a delayed type hypersensitivity reactions or, or difficulty in breathing. And this is going to be a problem. So it, it's it's mold growth due to water intrusion in buildings is what really causes the problems. And, and I, I, one, here's here's one of the interesting things that that um, the lawyers told me, and I don't I don't know if if you ladies are aware, but I imagine Eric is. Um, the lawyers would would always, and I would say to him, I would say I am shocked that the defense lawyers at the end. I'm, I say I'm shocked that you didn't ask me where's this stuff come from. And they thought, well, you know, that's a really good question. What's the answer to that? And I would say. It's already sitting on the building material. The, the stachybotrys spores are already on the cellulose sheetrock. 
put them into a house, not a problem. But if that sheetrock gets wet, stachybotrys spores begin to grow, and now you've got a problem. And they were amazed. And they said, really, sheetrock has stachybotrys spores on it already. I said, yeah, we've done that experiments. We've, we've bought sheetrock, put it in put water, and stachybotrys grows on it. So the spores are already there. They're just waiting for water. I did that same experiment. I went out to construction sites, just picked up random pieces of sheetrock, dropped them in the Ziploc bag with a little water, and watched it light up. It was amazing. Isn't that amazing? Absolutely. And they put this stuff in buildings everywhere. But the other interesting thing is when stachybotrys was first isolated for toxic studies, they would take it away from its competitors, remove it from its substrate, and it wasn't toxic. And it had to be grown on cellulose in order to be able to produce these powerful toxins. Yes, that's exactly that's exactly what happens. And and it's it's interesting the way that stachybotrys was first discovered. And I don't know, Eric, if you know this story. This was back, I think, right right after World War One, and because uh, everybody, especially people in Europe, where the war was fought, were so poor that they had and their they had to uh, feed their horses. Sometimes uh, hay, they would look at it and they would see this black mold growing on the hay. And they had no idea. They just couldn't afford, obviously, to throw that away and get, and get new hay. So they let their horses eat uh, hay that had stachybotrys growing on it. And the horses, many of the horses died. And that was the first way that uh, stachybotrys was discovered, that its toxic properties were discovered anyway. Well, my understanding is that Khrushchev was a, um, like a minister for Stalin. And he told the story years, many years later, that uh, Stalin was so upset at the sickness in the horses that he threatened to shoot all the handlers and all the veterinarians and everybody concerned with the upkeep of these horses until they found out why they were dropping dead. They very quickly isolated Stachybotrys and Fusarium as trichopecine producers. Yes, yes. In- interesting, interesting story. Uh, that that, uh, that the things that have occurred with this particular organism. All right. Yeah, are I, there any other questions that any of you ladies have? Eric and I are monopolizing the monopolizing the conversation. Yeah, um, I do have a question. So, just looking back in the fifty cases that you um, testified for, were there any like common themes? Like, do you know what the reasons were that the cases prevailed? Well. Um, I, I see what what the indoor air quality company and, and, and I I actually guided them in, in this direction. I wanted to them to be able to say and when these when these cases occurred and went to court, I wanted them to be able to say that everything that we're saying is backed up by peer reviewed science. So that was that was the common theme. And that that absolutely worked because we had, as I say, peer reviewed science to back up everything that we said. And the other side would have these MDs, which, which is essentially what the MDs, MDs on their side would say, there, there's no evidence. We don't believe any of that. It's just junk science. And there, therefore, then I could point in the case, I would say, OK, that you can say it's junk science, but I'm saying that it's peer reviewed science. And I'm not sure these lawyers really understood what peer reviewed science was, but the judges would allow me to come in as an expert. I was never turned down, um, even though they tried to say, well, he's not. We, he's not really an expert in the field because I had peer-reviewed papers in this area. I was always allowed to be an expert witness 
Um, and, and so th that was that was the, the common theme that that I saw is that the other side would essentially bring in MDs, would try to say this is all junk science, mold doesn't cause problems in anybody. We don't believe any of it. And I essentially would say, okay, here are my papers saying that there is a problem. Where are yours? And of course, they didn't have any. Wow. So that was the main tactic. They just tried to say that there was no evidence when you had the evidence. Were there any and other they, tactics they would try to use? They would They would just do that over and over again. And, and uh, we, we would almost always win, depending on how much money uh, individuals had to spend. I can remember one case in New Mexico. It was it was just horrible. This um, poor guy and the guy that owned the building was a multimillionaire. And the, the guy who, who was suing, you know, he had he was just like a regular guy. And he he didn't have the, the kind of money to, to run a case like this. And one of the things I learned in in doing uh, legal work is sometimes if you go up and I'm sure you can understand, this, especially with what's going on in this country now, is you can understand that if one side has millions and millions of dollars to throw at the other side with lawyers and lawyers and lawyers, eventually the guy who's very poor just says, I, I have I have to drop out. I can't I can't afford to, to do this case anymore, even though I've got all the facts on my side. I'm just being outspent. And and they just say, I, I just can't afford to do this anymore because bringing a case in court costs money. Yeah, lawyers fees and expert witness fees. It costs money. And if you don't have the amount of money to match the other side, you may very well be in trouble. And that's exactly what I saw in that case. The guy who had all the money said, I'll, I'll spend millions of dollars in this case. And the other guy that I was being the expert witness for finally told me that he couldn't do this anymore and, and just dropped out, dropped the case. Yeah, it's pretty disheartening to hear that Melinda fought so hard to pretty much come out even. And this is not the first time that I've heard of this. I've heard from other cases too. It's like, did did Linda uh, Melinda ever express to you like she felt like some some regret because of all the stress that it caused her, or was she just really stuck to the principle like I'm going to show them like we're going to prevail in this situation? Um, Melinda was probably one of the toughest, and I don't want to say just tough toughest women. I want to say one of the toughest people that I ever met before, and 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 nothing. Would stop her and and Melinda was, had a great deal of money. She was not poor. She had the kind of money to, to bring this this case. Um, and <laughs> unfortunately, you just won't believe what happened. I'm not going to tell you what happened to Melinda eventually, but she moved to Charleston. And I don't know if you, any of you guys have been to Charleston, but God, what a beautiful city that is. She bought a house in Charleston, and in the renovation of the house that she bought, the window companies put the windows in either upside down or backwards, so. That that water would, would seep in through the windows when it rained. And um, I went to her house and began to take samples because she said, I'm not feeling good again. And sure enough, she had stachybotrys in this new house in Charleston again. And, and, and there was another legal case begun. I said, Melinda, I can't believe that, you know, you, you move from one. And, you know, the, the house in the Dripping Springs, Texas, they, they tore down. It, it was never salvaged. And uh, she moved to it and bought a house in Charleston, which when they installed the windows incorrectly, I said, Melinda, I can't believe it, but you've got stachybotrys again. That's so disheartening to hear that she went from one bad situation to another. And 
to be honest with you, this is actually a common theme that we learn with a lot of people that we deal with in our mold community. They go from one bad situation to another. That happened to me personally. And it's just like, it's hard to stay on top of this. And sometimes you wonder if the bad stuff just follows you. Of course, that's obviously not true. But, um, you know, it, it's just crazy to me that the the Melinda case was so huge at its time. And this information was everywhere in all the newspapers. We've talked to another um, uh, journalist, Arnold Mann, who oh, I remember Arnie. Yes, book. I met him. Yes. Yeah, he covered her her information in his book, and then everything just went radio silent. It's like yeah. how how did we go from this being so big to I'll, now I'll nothing, and now I'll it's tell. like coming out again to be a big issue? I'll, I'll tell you how how it went radio silent is that insurance companies said, we're not covering mold anymore. If you have mold uh, damage in your house, that's your problem. And they excluded uh, paying for mold damage. That's, that's essentially what happened here in Texas. I don't know about the rest of the country, but that's, that's how they handled mold damage here. Uh, in fact, if you file a water uh, intrusion claim, the insurance company may very well drop you because, of course, water intrusion leads to mold growth. And they don't. And the insurance companies also landed on any doctor who was stepping up to try to be a mold doctor at the time. Yeah, and once again, that's a situation where insurance companies will throw a lot of money at you uh, and try to win the case that way. But Melinda, as I say, she had the money and and she had the fortitude to you know to take that case to trial and to win it. And so after that, uh, she and I were always good friends. In fact, I don't know. Did any of you guys see um, that that thing on? Um, what is that? It's, I can't think of the name of it now. Uh, clinical? Is it clinical? No. Darn, I, can't, I wish I could think of the name of the a television show that, that we did. It has to do with evidence. Did you guys ever see that show? Can't, can't think of it. What, what is it called? The uh, type, types of, of evidence that people, that scientists use to, to win trials? What is that called? I'm, I'm blanking on it. Junk science? <laughs> anyway, never mind. <laughs> I'll think of it later. In, is it like the type of evidence? Yeah, it's it's a, it's the things that evidence that scientists study, and um, you know to to convict people of crimes. I, I can't think of the name. Forensic. Of forensic files. That's it. Did you guys ever see the forensic file story about Melinda Ballard's house? I saw you a short you clip need, on you, YouTube. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you need you need to watch that. It's a fascinating. In fact, it's exactly how that case went. And it's only a half an hour long. They took that whole story and made it a half an hour long. And so it'll tell you exactly everything that happened in the Melinda Ballard case. Yeah. Um, Forensic Files is the name of it. And it's it's on television and um, it's called, I um, can't remember the name of the show now. Oh, I know what it's called. It's called Breaking the Mold. And it's a story about the Melinda Ballard case. And I, I'm in it and some of my technicians and students are in it too. Awesome. We'll check that out. Big pardon? We'll check that out. Um, yeah. You know, I did have a question for you since you, you know, you're a retired microbiologist. There are some interesting um, historical cases that I wanted to bring to mind to see what you thought of. Um, there's three that jump out um, of three families that have sued um, different oil companies, and they sued these oil companies stating that they caused mold growth in their home from nearby 
from like a nearby oil well that was in their neighborhood. What do you make of this? This is something new for me where I'm like, how? And, and uh, these families prevailed in their cases. So well, I think probably, and I, I'm not familiar with those cases at all, but something comes to mind about oil companies and oil companies now do something called fracking. Is that something you're familiar with? And, and, and fracking, they wind up driving tremendous amounts of water under very high pressure down into the well. That's the only way that I could think of that that um, that oil companies could cause problems in houses. It would be due to fracking if they're putting this tremendous amount of water in there, and then somehow uh, the water contamination gets in the houses. And of course, anytime you have water contamination in a house, you're going to have mold growth. That's the only ex- explanation of that, at least yeah, that I can think of, and that may not be correct. I just don't know. Got it. Yeah, because it just was really strange to me how they could blame them for the mold in their home. So it probably makes more sense with the fracking. I was thinking maybe there's some sort of chemical thing where the the oil or the petroleum is like a, a mold accelerant or something makes mold grow stronger, harder, faster. I don't know. <laughs> These are my thoughts. Uh, uh, the only thing I could think of would be would be fracking and, and somehow driving the water deep into that into into these wells and somehow gets into these people's houses. That's the only explanation I can think of. And as I say, I don't know if that's correct or not. Wow. Very interesting. Thank you for your opinion. I have no more questions if Keely and Eric um, have some final questions for you. No, this has been terrific. A great trip through the history of mold avoidance or a mold illness and how we learned about mold avoidance from these contaminated objects and how back in the, as far as the late 1990s, they still weren't aware of sick building syndrome of mold being a spe- specific cause for that. Well, as I say in this in this paper, and I've got my CV here, I can uh, tell you uh, what paper it was. Where? Let me see. So this is this is the paper that we published. That okay? I know where it is now. I found it. I think I sent you my CV, Alicia. And yeah, I have it. Yeah, it's numbers. My members number, yeah, it's number 74, and it's called uh, Correlation Between the Prevalence of Certain Fungi and Sick Building Syndrome. And in that paper, uh, that, that's the paper in which we showed, and of course, people, and they had, we had 46 buildings, and that's why we had such good statistical data, is people in, in these 46 buildings all had health complaints about the buildings, and all the buildings had water damage, and all the buildings had either stachybotrys or, or penicillin or both growing there. And once we went in and corrected buildings, essentially that, what that involved is uh, stopping the water intrusion and removing any mold contaminated building material and replacing it with clean building material, then the people no longer had health complaints. And, and that is the way in which we showed that mold was really what was responsible for uh, the phenomenon known as sick building syndrome, because we could take it a building that was sick. And of course, Buildings don't get sick. People get sick. But we could take a building that had people that had health complaints and, and clean it up. And now that people no longer had the health complaints. And that's how we showed uh, what, that, what mold was the primary causes of sick building syndrome. Well, if I could just throw in a little bit of chronic fatigue syndrome history. The um, researchers at the time in 1985 considered sick building syndrome as a contributor, but knew nothing about mold. So even when they were told about it, they couldn't make the connection that mold was any kind of a driving force. They said it was nothing but an allergy. And an abstract was done by uh, Arthur Chester and Paul Levine, published in 1994, 
which collated the information about the early chronic fatigue syndrome clusters at Truckee High School, at a building in Washington, D.C., a high school in, uh, or a school down in Elk Grove near Sacramento, and speculated that these buildings, the sick building syndrome, was a significant contributor to what was becoming called chronic fatigue syndrome. And even though there's an abstract calling for research into these sick buildings to find out what it might be, not a single researcher has ever looked into it to find out what we found out about those buildings since then, which happens to be toxic mold. The last paper I ever published was called Detection of My Mycotoxins in Patients with Chronic Fatigue Syndrome. And, it's, and I can, um, Alicia's got, the, got my CV. She can give you the, um, the reference. But we indeed looked at exactly what you're talking about in 2013. And yes. we indeed found that patients with chronic fatigue syndrome, they all had trichotoxy or they all had mycotoxins, various mycotoxins in their system. Now, I made sure in that paper not to say that um, mycotoxin production by fungi is the cause of chronic fatigue syndrome, but there was definitely a correlation between the presence of mycotoxins in the serum of these individuals. I think if we looked at the urine and the urine of these people. So what, what we said in this paper was that there was a correlation between the presence of mycotoxins in people and chronic fatigue syndrome. So we did follow that and we had we do have information on it. We published a paper on it. Well, um, I believe I talked to, I mentioned this in our previous interview that I had had contact with doctors um, Jack Thrasher and Joe Brewer in the years previous to that paper and told them the story of toxic mold actually starting the chronic fatigue syndrome. So at the time they were working with you, they were already aware that, chronic, that uh, toxic mold had been found in the original clusters that this syndrome was going to solve. Right. And I, I will say that the Dr. Thrasher has since passed away. But the reason the way the reason that we were able to do publish this work and do this paper is because Dr. Brewer had had he's an MD. He had access to all of these chronic fatigue syndrome patients. And my being a PhD, I never had access to these patients before. And that's why I really wanted to get this paper published. And I don't know if they've done any work since then following up on this. I really have once again, not being in the university anymore, I don't have access to recently published papers. Unfortunately not, because when Dr. Brewer published his paper, he was scientific advisor for the Whittemore Peterson Institute on UNR campus, the uh, Institute for Neuroimmune Disorders, and specifically for studying chronic fatigue syndrome. And I said, okay, now that you're aware that this mold phenomenon has been substantiated, it's time to look into the original clusters and learn that this was known all along, and they declined to do so. It's interesting, very interesting. So ever since then, uh, we've been trying to get chronic fatigue syndrome researchers to re-examine the core evidence that Gary Holmes was looking at, because once you know that the sick buildings were where the clusters occurred, and we later found stachybotrys in these very buildings in Elk Grove, at Truckee High School, and in Washington, D.C., uh, it makes a very serious case that toxic mold was indeed the contributor to chronic fatigue syndrome that we claimed it was at the time. Yeah, I, I believe that, believe that's true. And uh, although, as I say, in that paper we didn't say it's the cause of chronic fatigue syndrome, but there's definitely a correlation between the presence of these mycotoxins and, and chronic fatigue syndrome. 
Uh, that's the problem with using people who are diagnosed with chronic fatigue syndrome later is it becomes a mere association. But if you look at the original clusters that Gary Holmes and the CDC based the syndrome on, this makes it a direct substance that was located in the very phenomenon, in the very data set that the syndrome was based on. Yes, I, I have no doubt of that. Just wanted to ask you one last question, if you have just a few more minutes. Um, of we're seeing a very strange phenomenon in the um, mold inspection, home inspection arena. And um, everyone is talking about bacteria, bacteria being a major prob- problem in homes now. Um, what, are, what is your opinion of that? Because it seems like we have these two schools of thought where there's people that are attributing their illness to mold. And now this new thing where it's bacteria. Well, this is not the bacteria is not a new thing, right, Eric? This was something that was um, examined in the past as being a problem, but then the mold was discovered. And now we're kind of going back to the arena of, well, bacteria is actually the problem. What do you well, think? Can I, can I ask you, Alicia, what bacterium uh, are they referring to here? I'd love to know um, the organism. Yeah, the, the shoemaker organization is making a claim that atinomycetes are a problem in homes and endotoxins, I believe, as well. Okay, well, well, endotoxins are only produced by gram-negative organisms, and I can't, I can't remember actinomyces. Can't remember that the gram-positive or gram-negative organism? But um, I'll tell you this: that in order for bacteria to, to cause a problem in a house, there has to be a great deal of water. I mean, for example, the way that we got bacteria to grow would, of course, to be put it on an auger plate or get it to grow in an actual medium. So I just can't. I just. In our research, we never found bacteria to be the problem in buildings. We always found uh, particular organisms, as the two I mentioned, primarily stachy and penicillium. So I, I, I hesitate to say that that's accurate, but then again, I don't know. I haven't looked at I haven't looked at the data. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for that, for clearing the air a little bit there, um, and thank you so much for joining us. We really do appreciate it. And Eric, it was good to see and talk with you again. I always appreciate what what your knowledge. All right. Thanks. It's been great. We want to thank you for listening. Just sending a friendly reminder that what we say is not intended as medical advice, but information to expand your thinking surrounding common situations and issues within the mold community. If you like what we do, please support us by making a donation in the link in our show notes. We also provide one-on-one consultations, products to help with symptom management that you can find in our shop, and a private membership group filled with a supportive community of peers working together to heal from toxic mold. As a friendly reminder, Exposing Mold is a 501c3 nonprofit and every donation is tax deductible. Thank you so much for your support and we look forward to providing you with the most honest information out there on mold and mold issues. Please visit exposingmold.org for more information. (laughs) 